robotic software, uh, and we are the first and only uh, in the market that automates sourcing using behavioral pattern analytics. So, uh, in short, using us leads to more hires, which leads to more uh, recruiters that you guys have to hire or people in HR. So, when that comes into play, um, obviously there are some questions around employment agreements and restrictive covenants. So, I have Jill White from Womble Carlisle. She is an attorney there, um, and we're very happy to have her here and share her expertise. So, uh, Jill, uh, if you want to take it away, uh, and everybody, if you guys have questions at the end, we will be taking some questions. Um, just send me a ch in the chat that you can see on the right-hand side, send a host, and we can get those individual questions answered for you. Um, Jill, you there? Yeah, thanks, Dan. Hope everyone is having a good day so far. Uh, as Dan mentioned, my name is Jill White, and I am an attorney, and I focus on labor and employment law. So that means a lot of different things, right? Everything from kind of consulting day-to-day -day with hiring decisions, terminations, uh, leaves of absence, to drafting contracts, to actual litigation. So I have had the opportunity in the last eight years, um, I've been practicing law for eight years, uh, to kind of see these type of issues at play, both in the contract form and the negotiation stages, um, and then also, unfortunately, at times in litigation. And today, our goal is to kind of give a big overview of employment agreements, which we all know are contracts uh, in one form or another. And then we will focus particularly on what we call, uh, us attorneys, restrictive covenants. And that is, it is a covenant in the contract that is going to restrict an individual from doing something, uh, perhaps from working with one of your competitors, right, a non-competition clause, uh, perhaps perhaps restrict them from soliciting your customers and clients, a non-solicitation clause. So we will focus in on those restrictive covenants and uh, also give you a big overview. So I always uh, invite and welcome questions, and uh, we will have time and opportunity to do that. I'm going to try to spend about 30 to 40 minutes on the actual PowerPoint, because I think sometimes we learn more um, by engaging in a discussion. So please uh, don't hesitate to throw out a question. And if it pertains to a particular state law that I can't answer on the spot, um, I am happy to uh, uh, follow up with you. So you've got my email address here. Also feel free to reach out to me or email me during or after the presentation. Um, it's probably the best way to reach me. And I uh, will make a note to get back with you. So why is this worth your time? Uh, you've already carved out uh, your lunch um, or 45 minutes out of your schedule today to talk about employment agreements. And so you're really already being proactive and, and on the right uh, way, on in the right direction. Because like a lot of different laws, whether we're talking about, um, you know, the Family Medical Leave Act, discrimination under Title VII, or whether we're talking about your company's internal policies, whether it's a handbook, uh, whether it's a job description, or again today, a contract, these topics, because they're legal, are constantly uh, changing. And so because of that, it's so important uh, for companies to stay ahead and to kind of refresh themselves uh, or the company on what your documents currently look like. 
Should they be changed? Are you currently doing things the way that you should be? Could you be improving in some areas? Um, or perhaps you're already doing some things good or, or better. So I applaud you uh, for taking the time to do this because it really, taking the time and spending the money to do it on the front end will really save you time uh, and cost down the road in the event of any disputes with your current employees uh, or in the event of litigation. So today, our goals, as I mentioned, is to kind of give you a 40,000-foot overview of employment agreements, including restrictive covenants. Uh, I want to make sure you have an understanding of fundamental contract provisions, uh, drafting techniques. I have actually pulled from some of the contracts I have drafted with clients, uh, and again, focusing on the staffing industry. So I have clients in, in various different industries, but today I'm trying to give particular attention to those in the staffing industry and recruiters. Um, I've got clients uh, across that spectrum, so maybe a combination of recruiting and staffing or solely one or the other. So I've pulled from some of those contracts. I'm going to share with you some of the language that I use uh, for purposes of restrictive covenants. One thing you'll hear me say probably repeatedly is the language you choose to use in your contracts depends heavily on what jurisdiction you're in. And what I mean by that is what state law governs. Uh, several states have statutes specifically on point that discuss non-competition agreements uh, or non-solicitation agreements. So it's important for you to know kind of the lay of the land. Where are you? And it may be that you're in several states and several jurisdictions. And in that case, you want to make sure you're considering for this particular hire, what, you know, what are we trying to accomplish and where are they located? So keep that in mind. I will be sharing some contract language with you, um, but it's not something you want to do a copy-paste job on because there's a lot, as we'll discuss, you need to consider uh, before actually drafting and executing a contract. So we'll look at those drafting techniques. We'll identify key language that I think can be uh, very helpful for protecting your business interest. And then let's talk a little bit about enforceability, right? Uh, these contracts and these clauses aren't really good uh, to us if we can't enforce them. And then what does that enforcement look like? What are the benefits of pursuing a temporary restraining order? When is that appropriate? What are the benefits of engaging in some initial demands and settlement discussions? And is that more appropriate? So we'll uh, get into the weeds on those issues as well. Okay, the nuts and bolts of contracts. Uh, the disclaimer here is that we can't really dive in and start focusing on restrictive covenants without giving at least a little bit of credence to contracts generally. So uh, whatever size company you're at, you're familiar with contracts in various forms, whether it's a contract with your client, a staffing agreement, whether it's contracts with your vendors, or whether it's an employment agreement, there's always these boilerplate clauses that you see from every agreement to the next. So I want to just touch briefly on a few of those and kind of emphasize why they are important. Uh, I see several clients sometimes as their contracts evolve, uh, they start either tweaking or deleting some of these provisions, either on their own accord or because it's been requested by a client or by an employee. And I want you to at least be aware of the significance of these standard clauses and why they're there so that you can understand uh, and at least give appropriate consideration to them before removing them from any contract. So recitals are all of those fancy clauses that start with whereas. Whereas ABC Staffing Company is engaged in the business of providing temporary 
uh, employment or temporary employees on a part-time basis at, you know, uh, company XYZ here and after the client. And whereas the parties wish to enter into an agreement, those are all of your recital clauses. Important to note that sometimes people put important definitions uh, or language in those recitals, and the recitals are not actually binding for the most part. Um, you can really create some uh, litigation and issues there. So anything that's above the now, therefore, in consideration, we agree to the following. Anything above that that's in the recitals isn't necessarily binding, so keep that in mind. Uh, choice of law is very important. This is your opportunity to be able to intentionally and deliberately select your forum. Um, so two things here you're doing. You're choosing the law that's going to govern the contract, and then you're choosing your forum, which is in the event that there's a dispute, you know, what court are we going to be in? Are we going to be in a court in Vermont, um, you know, Virginia? Are we going to be in Florida? Are we definitely going to be in federal court? Or maybe we're going to arbitrate because arbitration seems to be a lot uh, quicker at resolution and more inexpensive and efficient. So uh, you want to make sure you consider these things. Uh, your contracts may vary depending on where they're executed. So you may have several contracts that have North Carolina as a governing law, uh, and then Virginia uh, or Georgia or wherever for a different contract. So make sure you're taking some power and control and being mindful about what choice of law you want to govern. And part of that is what law is more favorable to you. In the context of an employment agreement, Georgia law, for example, is very favorable uh, in recent years due to some changes in their state law statutes for employers uh, when it comes to enforcing and drafting non-competition clauses. So if you've got offices in Georgia and it's an employee in Georgia, or um, you may want to choose for Georgia law to govern, and that would actually be wise. Um, it would be more favorable to you than it would be North Carolina law, for example. So these are things that you really have the opportunity to uh, you know, seize upon and take control, and you should do so. So they are important. Um, and then the language in bold below each is just an example of the type of language you may see in your contracts. And then finally, with the form selection and the venue for where to bring any type of dispute, that's obviously uh, important because it's going to help you control your cost. If you've got uh, litigation in your backyard, then you can control you know, your travel expenses, it can help with your time and efficiency in handling the matter, especially because most likely some of your employees at your company are going to be involved in that as well. Everyone uh, is very much familiar with and hopefully insists upon the attorney's fees clause. This can appear in various forms. Um, a lot of times it may be drafted as it is here, that the prevailing party, which is kind of the key language, right, that the prevailing party, uh, if there's a dispute and it, it's litigated, that the winner, essentially the prevailing party, will be awarded their reasonable attorney's fees. Um, that is something that you can typically contract for. There are some state laws and jurisdictions that say you cannot contract for attorney's fees. But for the most part, they're almost always included. They're a good thing to have. Sometimes you may draft this provision to be slanted in favor of one party. So you may start when you negotiate a contract saying that in the event of a dispute, uh, company staffing company ABC will be awarded its attorney's fees. Um, but for the most part, kind of the general rule of thumb is this prevailing party standard. 
And then your severability clause. Uh, this clause is very important, and in particular, it's important for employment agreements, um, but really important for all. And what this says is that in the event that your contract is reviewed by a judge, um, a jury, an arbitrator, in the event that part of your contract or maybe one paragraph or one sentence of your contract is found to be unlawful or void um, or unenforceable for various reasons, maybe it's overbroad, uh, are ambiguous, then that one portion is stricken, but the remainder of the contract is still good, right? It's still enforceable. So if we screwed up somewhere and something's not enforceable, it doesn't wipe out the entire agreement. Um, I would say that the severability clause and the merger clause, which we'll discuss next, um, are two essentials to, to nearly all contracts, and you probably have seen them more than, than any other clauses. So this is really important, and we'll talk about the severability clause later on with respect to employment agreements. Okay, the merger clause, this is your go-to boilerplate clause that says, everything under the sun that's been discussed related to this contract, whether verbally in discussions, whether on paper, everything we've agreed to between us parties, whether it's us, the company, and you, the employee, uh, is articulated in this agreement and is binding, and there's nothing else. So this is the entire agreement, right? That's important because we don't want someone to be able to challenge it later with what us attorneys call parole evidence. So evidence outside of the contract that says, actually, we intended for something else to happen or we intended this other addendum or clause to govern. Um, merger clause is essential for every contract, and employment agreements are just no different. Um, very important to have that. With the merger clause, in the event that you change the contract down the road, you can do so in writing. Um, and that's why you have this language that it can be uh, amended, modified, supplemented, waived, discharged, or terminated, meaning the contract can be terminated by way of a written document. So if you have a written addendum, then there's still ways to change it. Um, and, that, and that language is there for a reason. Okay, for employment agreements, you want to have uh, at the end of your contract an acknowledgement uh, paragraph. And this is where the employee, uh, both parties, but particularly the employee who's going to be bound to this agreement, especially when we're talking about restrictive covenants, you want them to say that, look, I've had the opportunity to review this contract. I've had enough time to consider it. Uh, I've read the entire thing. I understand it. I've had the opportunity to seek uh, guidance from an attorney and that I know I am entering into it and signing this agreement of my own free will, right? We want to avoid any uh, undue influence, coercion, or intimidation type defenses when we need to enforce that agreement later on. So this acknowledgement provision uh, is again, equally important. So I bring your attention to those uh, nuts and bolts, boilerplate provisions, because while they seem mundane and that we see them all the time, they have their own significance and they are important. And so I felt like a few minutes uh, going over those was, was warranted. This may seem obvious, other considerations. Um, it's hard to believe that this is even, you know, justifying a page on the slide, but it is because surprisingly I, I hear a lot from clients who go, you know what, that employee never signed 
the employment agreement. Or maybe they did and we just can't find it, but we just don't have their signature. Or I may, although I for the most part represent companies, uh, very rarely and, and less than I can count on one hand, have I represented a executive in the past. And on one particular case, the executive said, never signed it. They kept asking for it. I kept telling them I needed more time to speak to my attorney and to get back with them. And eventually, the company just forgot about it. And so we debated and argued briefly over the fact that it wasn't signed. But when they could not produce a signed copy, and my client's testimony is I never signed it, uh, this was a huge uh, company. This was an executive with a very important role at the company, and he could walk away uh, without any restrictions with respect to competition or solicitation of clients and customers. So it seems obvious, but nonetheless very important. Signatures are crucial. Um, having it in writing, consideration, uh, as with any contract, you have to have uh, an offer from one party of what services or goods that they're going to provide. You have to have acceptance of those terms by the other party, and every contract has to be supported by consideration. In other words, money. In other words, for an employment agreement, a job. I agree to hire you. I'm going to employ you in this position if you agree to be bound by these terms. The consideration for nearly all employment agreements is the job itself. The fact that you are employing an individual is sufficient consideration. Noteworthy is that if you decide at some point, if the company decides, we think this employee is going to be promoted to a managerial position or uh, an executive official type position, now it's appropriate to have them sign a non-compete. So they've been an ongoing employee with the company already, uh, but there was never really a need to have them bound to a restrictive covenant. Then you can draft that agreement. You can have them sign it even though employment has already commenced, but you have to clearly spell out what's the consideration. Um, is continued employment adequate consideration? In some jurisdictions, it is. Uh, in other jurisdictions, they require new consideration. And the hypothetical I just gave you, that's pretty easy because the new consideration is the job promotion. We're not going to promote you and give you keys to, uh, you know, all of this proprietary information unless you agree to be bound. So uh, it's typically easily addressed, but you want to make sure that it's clearly defined within your contract. Um, dates are crucial. And then as we just spoke about a moment ago, if you're going to change anything, if you're going to amend or add anything, it needs to be in writing. Okay, employment agreements in particular, you definitely want to address the employee's status. So if you're entering into a contract with your employees, then you want to know, are they going to be considered an at-will employee? Are you in a right-to-work uh, state, meaning that they can you know, quit anytime without notice, you can fire and terminate anytime without notice? North Carolina is an at-will state. A lot of states in the southeast are at-will. Uh, if that's the case and you want to maintain that relationship, clearly define it. A uh, case just came out, um, and I believe it was in the district court for uh, D.C., District of Columbia, just came out in the last few weeks, uh, something that seems so simple that we don't really see litigated anymore, and it was this issue, at-will employment, um, because the contract didn't say the employee was at-will. 
and it was kind of presumed um, that they were at will, but the contract was not very clear. And the contract also had a clause that said in the event um, that you don't, you know, you, you steal property or do anything, we can terminate you. The court read that as saying it implies that they have to have misconduct in order to be terminated. So you can't fire this person even though you want to. Um, you have entered into a contract by which they are now guaranteed employed employment. So keep an at-will provision. If you are going to provide them with a the term of employment, clearly define what constitutes termination and termination for calls. Uh, a lot a lot of attorneys um, send their kids to college just on that one clause alone, right? Um, the ability to terminate an employee with or without cause. There's a lot of cases litigated on that issue. Confidentiality clauses, a non-disclosure agreement. There may be several employees uh, at your company that absolutely should sign a confidentiality agreement, but they don't need to necessarily be bound by a non-computer non-solicitation. Um, a lot of employees uh, are given access to proprietary confidential information belonging to the company or maybe even your clients just by the nature of what they do for you. Um, they're going to encounter that information. So it's very appropriate to include confidentiality non-disclosure agreements. Uh, for maybe a majority of your workforce, but you wouldn't want to include an intellectual property, for example. For some of your employees, you want that inventions clause, that's the intellectual property, that anything that they create uh, and maintain in the course and scope of their employment is actually the property of the company. Um, this is particularly crucial for your engineers and those who are designing, um, so maybe not as relevant to the staffing industry. but. If appropriate, you want to make sure that you have patent rights to anything that was created by one of your employees in the scope of their employment. And then finally, as we're getting into the restrictive covenants, your non-competition clauses and non-solicitation. In every employment agreement, make sure you clearly define the individual's job position and responsibilities. Um, I would really recommend that you either say, Employees shall serve as, you know, manager or office branch manager with other duties as may be assigned from time to time by the company's management and as set forth in attachment A. And I would actually use as an exhibit to the contract as an attachment a detailed description of the job or you could attach the job description in some form or another. So you want to clearly define the employee's job duties. And that's important because in the event that they leave the company, they're fired, they quit, or they try to breach their restrictive covenants with you, you need to be able to clearly articulate what it is that they did for the company. And you also want to have, which you will, their signature on the contract that says, yeah, I knew that this was my job position when I was hired um, or when, it was, when I was promoted and that these were my responsibilities. Uh, you also want to remind the employee that they are performing duties consistent with their position um, to the satisfaction of the company, and then really that they're going to devote their full professional and business-related time, skills, and best efforts to working for you, right, to working for the company. Um, it's really almost like a loyalty clause, that they understand that they are expected to devote themselves to the company um, and to comply with all of the company's policy standards and procedures regulations. So uh, that's an important clause as well.
this is huge. Um, as much and as often as I see litigation or disputes over an employee leaving a staffing company, and I represent, let's say, the client, and they're up in arms and upset because an employee has left and they're now going to work for a competitor, and, you know, we have understandably concerns about protecting our proprietary information. I think naturally that's what most of us think about when we consider enforcing a non-compete. But the flip side of that is how many of you have been in the position where you want to hire someone, right? You want to hire or recruit that individual, but they're under or they're bound by an employment agreement and a non-compete covenant with their current employer. Uh, and they may come to you and say, look, I got out of it. My client or my employer agreed to release me from this non-compete. Um, you may reach an agreement like that. You would, as your attorney, I would advise you to make sure you have something in writing separate from this. But regardless, at the end of the day, in your employment agreements with your new employees, you want to include this employee representations clause, that your employee is agreeing and representing that the restrictions on their business are fair and protect legitimate business interests, right? So that what they are being bound to is fair and reasonable, um, and that they also acknowledge that they've been given consideration for signing the agreement. Um, that's the same thing kind of as we talked about is in the acknowledgement. And then this is the second portion of that clause, which goes to no conflicting obligations. You really want all of your new hires to acknowledge in writing in their contract that the performance of their job duties will not cause a breach of another agreement or contract that they have with a former employer. Um, that's important because that will help shield you from liability. Now, having this clause in and of itself is not going to protect you from a company or another staffing company coming after you and saying, you hired our employee, you did so knowing that they were under a non-compete and that by hiring them, they would be in violation of that contract. Um, this is why when you read a lot of cases or you read the news, a lawsuit is not always typically just against the employee, it's against their new employer. So staffing companies sues their former employee who's gone and, and works now for their competitor, but they say, you know what, we're going to sue you too, competitor, under theories such as uh, tortious interference with contract, unfair and deceptive trade practices, uh, perhaps civil conspiracy. There's all these type of civil negligence and, and civil tort claims uh, that can arise in this context as well. So. Acknowledge that these provisions are important uh, because they're representing to you as their new, as your new employee that I'm not going to do anything that's going to cause me to violate a separate contract, uh, but it will not completely shield you from liability, but it's always advisable to have something like this in writing. And to back up for a moment, big picture, not every employee that you hire should have an employment agreement. You don't have an employment agreement with every single employee, right? So your receptionist, uh, your clerical staff, especially with, for those of you that are in an at-will employment state, you hire someone, you offer them a job, and they are allowed to work for as long as you like or as long as they like. They can quit, you can fire them without reason, at any time, uh, without cause and without notice except for an unlawful reason. So you can't fire someone, obviously, for 
reasons based on their race or their national origin or their religion, those areas that are protected by our federal laws, whether it's Title VII or the Age Discrimination and Employment Act or the Americans with Disabilities Act. You don't want to fire someone because they've developed a disability. But outside a legally protected right, you have the freedom to fire someone. So you don't want to just go entering into and signing contracts with all of your employees. And that's why I applaud you for going through these steps today and kind of getting acquainted again with employment agreements generally because you need to think through, you know, what is it that this employee is going to be doing and should we have a contract? Why? What's the purpose of the contract and is it appropriate? Because a lot of times just going through the steps, making uh, educated and informed decisions about the contract itself and whether you even need one uh, can really protect your company and your business interest in the long run. So what is a non-compete? Uh, you know, pretty simple form is that a non-compete agreement restricts an employee from performing services for certain competitors, right? Um, it may prevent them from working for competitors entirely, so you can't go work for a competitor in any capacity, or it may say that you can't go work for a competitor in, in certain capacities or in the same or similar positions that you held with us. Um, a competitor can become very important when you try to enforce this restrictive uh, covenant. So you want to be able to identify who are your competitors in the marketplace. Uh, you want to be able to easily articulate who they are. Uh, for the most part, non-compete clauses are disfavored uh, by the courts. They are typically viewed as an unlawful restraint on business and trade. Uh, the thought process there and the public policy argument is that individuals should have the right uh, to go work where they want to work and it, it promotes uh, free trade. And so when we restrict that, um, there's arguably a public policy violation. With that said, although that's kind of the general stance on things, several jurisdictions have become more lenient in recent years toward uh, non-competes and are enforcing them in much more employer-friendly environments. Again, such as Georgia is the most recent example of that Georgia law. Um, here in North Carolina, it's really conservative. Um, Again, they're disfavored. The courts are not going to enforce them unless they are narrowly drawn for the sole purpose of protecting a legitimate business interest. And that's kind of the legal ease that you hear attorneys and judges. And if you read court opinions, you'll see those three words, legitimate business interest. Those are the magic words when it comes to drafting, creating, enforcing a non-compete clause or non-solicitation clause. So a non-compete um, has to have a few things, right? It's, why are you doing this? The purpose has got to be to protect legitimate business interests. In other words, this is your family jewels. This is the company's uh, most important possessions. Most jurisdictions recognize two things as being legitimate business interests, your customers and clients and the company's goodwill, right? So your customer list, your contact list for all your customers and accounts, detailed information pertaining to your customers, that's generally 
a protectable business interest and you have a right to want to protect those clients. Now, identifying your clients, if an employee leaves your company and they take with them a Word document or a scratch piece of paper that says, here's um, ABC Staffing's clients, and it's just a list of client names, most courts will hold well, that's nothing more than reading the phone book, right? Um, you can probably go on someone's website or just by being in the industry, you can figure out who this staffing company's clients are. So that's not really proprietary. That's not really protectable, just to keep disclosure of your clients. But if it's a client list, it's got your clients on there, important information about their accounts or how you service their accounts, their contact information, who are their key people that you communicate with. Um, now we're kind of getting into the meat of, you know, your relationship with those customers and clients. And in that scenario, we can have an easier time building this protectable business interest that you've got vested in your clients. Um, the other basis uh, for being able to establish that there's a reason to have a non-compete, right, there's a protectable interest is your proprietary information, your trade secrets, things about the company that are unique to the company, your marketing strategies, uh, your product development strategies, the strategies in the way that you recruit employees um, and that you maintain your payroll, things that are really unique to your company may constitute trade secrets. Most state jurisdictions have statutes that define what constitutes a trade secret. So again, it can be heavily driven by state law. Um, but this is why you have a non-compete, is to do or is to provide protection of your customers, clients, and to provide protections of your trade secrets. So if you ask an employee to sign a non-compete, and that employee is your receptionist, and so all they really have access to is maybe who's coming and going, you're not going to be able to enforce that non-compete ever because there's no protectable interest. Um, the first step is really being able to establish to the court, I have a purpose and a legitimate business interest in binding this employee to this restrictive covenant. So that's number one, and that's, again, arguably the most important, but the other three are also necessary. Most courts will apply a reasonableness standard. We're only going to enforce and hold an employee to a non-compete if it's reasonable with respect to scope, time, and territorial reach. You know, how far does it extend? Does it say they can't work anywhere in the United States, they can't work anywhere in the state of Nevada, in the state of Florida, in the southeast? How is a territory defined, and is it reasonable? What type of time limitations are we talking about? Are we talking about six months, one year, two years? Uh, what's the time restriction? As most of you probably know, I would say the most common is one year, maybe two year. Uh, but the most part, for the most part, what I see is one year. And then scope. It's not just time and geographical limitation, but what are you preventing them from doing? What does the language say? And that's why I would say that one of the biggest pitfalls, common pitfalls for clients that draft uh, employment agreements, is they don't stop and think through for this particular hire what are they going to be doing, and what is it exactly that we need to protect? Because you're going to do yourself a favor by drafting your contracts 
as narrowly, especially the restrictive covenants in the contract, as narrowly tailored as possible. Because the more narrow and the more specific that they are to that employee, the more likely you're actually going to be able to enforce them. Most jurisdictions say if it's overbroad, they're unenforceable. And there's legal doctrines out there, such as the blue pencil rule, that say, okay, in some jurisdictions, like North Carolina, if the restrictive covenant is unenforceable, if you really didn't define the scope, or you said that they can't go work for a competitor in any capacity, then it's court in North Carolina is going to say that's too overbroad, and therefore you um, that's too overbroad, and therefore the whole thing is unenforceable. Uh, other states do what we call blue pencil. They will actually revise your contract for you to make it more reasonable. Um, Georgia now does allow for some of that. So um, your jurisdiction is really important, but make sure you're considering why are they signing it? What's the legitimate business interest I'm trying to protect? Is it reasonable? Is it supported by consideration? If this is a new hire and they haven't started working yet, then we know that providing them with employment, for the most part, in most jurisdictions, that's going to be consideration. If it's an ongoing employee, someone who's already been working here, and we're now asking them to sign a non-compete, let's make sure we've got adequate consideration, right? Um, because if we don't, we may want to throw in a signing bonus uh, to provide for consideration so that we can enforce this against them down the road. And the public interest is what we discussed a moment ago, that it's not just an overbroad, unfair restraint on trade. So here's an example, as I mentioned earlier, that I was willing to share with everyone, a non-compete clause, right? Um, covenant not to compete. An employee agrees that during his or her employment for a period of 12 months, so there's that one-year time uh, restriction, which for the most part is, is reasonable in most contexts. Uh, for one year immediately following the termination of employment. These three words are important for any reason. So it doesn't matter that the employee quit voluntarily. It doesn't matter that you fired them and it was an involuntary termination. It doesn't matter that their husband or spouse is having to relocate and they're moving. Whatever the reason, right, for a period of 12 months, um, the individual will not, on a full-time, part-time, or contractor basis, engage in the business as defined herein. And you want to define exactly what your business is. And again, this is tied to making your contracts as unique and narrowly tailored to your company and your company's business interest as you possibly can. And the other kind of magic language in this non-compete clause is right here, same or substantially similar capacity. Again, most courts will say that if you provide this language that says for a period of 12 months after termination, uh, whether full-time, part-time, or contractor basis, you cannot engage in the business uh, on behalf of a company or a competitor that provides services similar to the services we provide. That would essentially say you, it's what we call the janitor rule. Um, I work now as a recruiter, let's say, for a staffing company, and my contract says that for 12 months I can't go work in, for any company that's engaged in the same business, so any other staffing company. Well, so that technically prevents me from going to be a janitor at a competing staffing company. 
uh, is the court really going to prevent me from sweeping the floors or cleaning the toilets at my you know at a competitor right down the street? Uh, probably not, no, and, and that's really known as a janitor rule. So for that reason and for that rule, we want to prevent an employee from going to work for a competitor in the same or substantially similar capacity. Um, and by using that language alone, I've seen some staffing clients be much more successful in enforcing their non-compete covenants than they otherwise would have been. Um, here's your geographic restriction. This says 25-mile radius. Um, that will depend on the facts and circumstances of your particular agreement. So you have to take a lot into consideration, such as the individual that we're discussing, what is their job position, what is it we're trying to protect. If their position allowed them access to clients across multiple jurisdictions and states, and they had um, intricate, intimate uh, relationships with clients located in several states, then we want to make sure that we extend it to that, and there's a way to do that. Here, if it's a recruiter, and there's a lot of recruiters in North Carolina, and we're just trying to get them to go work for a competitor in the same capacity as just being a general recruiter, well, we probably can't keep them from recruiting everywhere in the state of North Carolina. But 25-mile radius or within 50 miles of this county that may be appropriate. So if you've got a company in Charlotte, North Carolina, and you don't want your recruiters to go work for another competitor within Charlotte for a year, you can probably enforce that. Now, trying to enforce that so that they can't go work in Wilmington Beach um, may not arguably be enforceable unless you can show justification for that. So the territory is important. Um, final comment here that you'll notice is it's 25 miles from the location where the employee worked. If you say 25 miles from wherever you have an office and that employee never even went to your other offices, several courts have said you can't enforce that. It should be tied to where that individual worked or where they provided services to your customers. So maybe their office wasn't located in Wilmington Beach, but you had a client in Wilmington Beach and they serviced that client in Wilmington Beach okay, well, maybe now we can prevent them from going to Wilmington, right? So you want to make sure that you narrowly construe these agreements. This is a remainder of that clause. Um, it just gets a little more into specifics. Uh, again, that you're going to see this language that they can't go work in the same as substantially similar capacity in which they engaged in business on behalf of the company. Um, the gist of this clause is saying that we don't care whether you're going to leave to go be an owner, to go be an employee, to go be a stockholder, whatever the case may be, um, you can't go be engaged in the same substantially similar capacity um, as you are now in any of those contexts. I know we're going to go through some of this quickly, so I'm happy to share my PowerPoint with any of you um, after the presentation. Again, if you will email me, then I'll be glad to, to send it back to you. So we've already kind of discussed why do you require a non-compete uh, contract. You know, you want to make sure that you're protecting your trade secrets, your key relationships with your customers. The other purpose is you want to give your competitors pause before hiring your employees. If they know that you've got a reputation for enforcing your non-competes and you've got a pretty legitimate uh, agreement with your employee, 
they're going to give some hesitation to hiring and taking away or poaching, rather, your workforce um, than they may otherwise uh, do. And then finally, you want to give your own employees reason to think, uh, maybe I shouldn't just go seek out that new job or accept this job without giving further consideration to my non-compete agreement. Um, and that's kind of the deterrent effect. I do have several clients that my advice to them may be, you cannot legally bind an employee to a non-compete because their job position just frankly probably doesn't warrant a non-compete, and I think you're going to lose. My clients may choose, we're still going to ask them to sign it as just a deterrent. We may know or, or we may think that it's a, you know, questionable as to whether we can enforce it, but it's nevertheless going to deter them. Um, I always give my clients that's the advice um, that I can't provide, right? That's a business decision. So I can tell you that the speed limit on the interstate is 70. I can't tell you how fast to drive. I can't tell you whether you're going to get away with going 75 or whether you're going to get away with going 80 miles an hour. Um, my job is to tell you what the law says. The law says that it has to be specifically and narrowly tailored. Um, you may choose to use your non-competes as a deterrent effect. I have seen judges and I've seen courts really frown upon that, again, linking it to uh, an unfair or, you know, unfair restraint on business practices and unfair restraint on trade, and it could potentially actually lead to a uh, cause of action against you on that basis. Um, so that is a risk and a business decision that you've got to make uh, on behalf of the company. So, again, we focused on the importance of thinking through the employment agreement before you just make this a routine Thing. You don't want to start manufacturing employment agreements for every new hire that walks through your door. Um, it's just simply not wise to, um, you know, roll these out and expect everybody to sign it. It's going to be different depending on the employee, depending on their job positions. Um, you may have some employees that it's just appropriate to have a confidentiality to non-disclosure. You don't need the non-compete. Um, or maybe you do, but how it's drafted needs to be different than how you've previously drafted it or that you're going to draft it for the next new hire. Um, so these are some of the reasons that you want to think about why you're requiring it um, and get guidance from your attorney when, ne when necessary. You know, what is this employee going to have access to? Um, why is it that we're asking them to sign this document? This is a general rule of thumb. It's not perfect, but non-exempt employees or hourly employees typically are not going to be those individuals who need to be signing a non-compete for the most part. They may need to sign a confidentiality agreement. Your exempt employees um, typically sign a standard non-compete agreement, but for some of your officers and executives or specific engineers, technical type positions, you're going to want a very unique, customized non-compete agreement. Non-solicitation is a, another common form of a restrictive covenant. And a non-solicitation agreement says that this employee can't go solicit, whether intentionally, directly, or indirectly. Um, they're not going to go solicit your customers um, or maybe your employees, right? So my advice is your non-solicitation serves a different purpose than your non-competition. So have them in separate paragraphs. This goes back to how we started the webinar with the severability clause. In the event your non-compete is unenforceable, 
I still want you to be able to enforce your non-solicitation provision. So have them in separate paragraphs. They're two different things. I don't like lumping them together. Um, so non-solicitation of clients sets forth that they can't go after your customers for a period of 12 months. They can't solicit them. Um, and, you know, a good thing to have, again, depending on the job position. This is an example of language that I've used in the past, non-solicitation of clients. Here's a separate, again, separate paragraph that you're not going to solicit our employees when you leave. Um, you'll notice that in both, we've got the language, after your period of employment ends, after your um, employment is terminated, for any reason, right, and you're going to see that in the next one, for any reason, you're not going to solicit. Um, those are good non-solicitation clauses to have. We've talked a little bit about consideration. Um, in North Carolina, for example, if you decide tomorrow you want five of your recruiters to sign non-competes and they've been working for you already and you're in North Carolina, you're going to have to give them a bonus um, to serve as new consideration. Uh, state law may dictate what amount is enough. In North Carolina, the courts have simply said that, well, we're going to uphold a bonus that was $500 because we haven't specifically said and we're not going to take it upon us as a court to decide what's enough. It's free bargaining power between the two parties entering into the contract. So we know in North Carolina that at least $500 is enough um, and arguably less than that. So make sure you're familiar with what jurisdiction you're in. Give them consideration. Keep it narrowly tailored. Be mindful of your jurisdiction damages. Um, you know, you want to be aware that you're protecting the company from irreparable harm. You want to include this language in your contract, that the employee understands that the reason they're being asked to sign uh, this agreement is that if they violate it, it will result in irreparable harm to the company. Um, another important provision to include. So when it comes to enforcement of your agreements, uh, each situation, the facts and circumstances are going to be different. So you've got to assess the risk, your liability and exposure depending on those particular facts. You had an employee that left yesterday. You know, what's the real risk? Is this somebody who was an executive? Is this someone who had intimate knowledge of your inner uh, company workings with respect to customers and how you recruit employees, someone with really intimate knowledge about your proprietary information. Or maybe they had uh, intimate relationships with some of your key clients. Um, that would be a big risk. You know, that's, that could really hurt the company. How realistic is that? Um, assess the actual damages, um, not just what the risk is, if they go work for a competitor or if they violate their confidentiality clause. But have they already done that, right? Have they already solicited clients from us? We know that they have a high risk of doing it and that we're really exposed right now, but that's separate and apart from doing your due diligence. Um, before you go file a lawsuit, before you can go seek any type of temporary restraining order, an attorney who represents you you're just going to need to work with you to say, what damage has actually been incurred so far? Um, this is going to require witnesses. It's going to require you to be comfortable talking with your clients. Have you heard from John Doe? Has he contacted you? Um, what has he said? Has he tried to solicit your business? Assess um, your contract. 
the first thing an attorney is going to ask you is, let me see a copy of the contract. Is it enforceable? Is it enforceable in this jurisdiction? Uh, is the governing law uh, favorable to us? How likely is it that we're going to succeed if we pursue litigation? Um, assess your workforce. Is it important to make an example out of this employee? Uh, do we need to show that we're going to stand by our employment agreements? Um, are we threatened by our current workforce? Are they going to leave and do the same thing? And then finally, it's always um, important, and it's the driving influence is costs and expenses. Uh, as I'm sure everyone on the line is aware, litigation is expensive. Just to go out and get a temporary restraining order to immediately get an employee to cease and desist from taking your clients uh, has to act quickly, and it's a lot of legal work. And I would say the average bill is $30,000 to $40,000, $50,000 just for that initial temporary restraining order. Um, you're being dragged into court on short notice, and um, your court fees, your legal fees will run you in that range. Uh, if the lawsuit continues and you go through the discovery phase, uh, depositions, potentially trial, you're looking at $100,000 or significantly more, even double um, or triple, depending on the scope of the litigation. A lot of these disputes, especially in the staffing industry, I've had a lot of staffing clients where we're able to send a cease and desist letter, a demand letter. And by talking to the employee's attorney or their new company, their new employer's attorney, we're able to reach an agreement. And the back and forth sending letters and getting it resolved, maybe we enter into a new contract where you agree to let them out of the non-compete if they promise that they're not going to solicit your clients, get near your clients for at least a year, and they're going to maintain the confidentiality. You know, we've got to assess what are we really concerned about and how can we maintain control. We can typically get good solutions resolved uh, within $5,000 or less. So that's often um, a good option to consider. And then also consider whichever route you go, there's going to be a distraction in your workplace if there's litigation involved. You're going to need maybe employees to testify, um, especially your managers. Are you willing and, and ready and prepared to disrupt uh, your workplace? And, you know, loss of productivity in and of itself is going to cost you bottom line. Common pitfalls. One size fits all. Not every contract is appropriate for every new employee. Um, don't fall into that trap. You've got to make it unique. What's their position, their job duties, where are they going to be located, and, and why are we asking them to sign this? Timing is everything. If it's a new hire, you need this signed before they start working. Um, if they say they need time to look over it with an attorney and they keep dragging their feet, fine. They can have all the time in the world, but they have until a certain date where you say you start work that day. And if you don't show up with a signed agreement, you can't start work and we're going to pursue filling the position with somebody else. You've got to maintain control and force an individual to either sign the agreement or you choose to hire someone else. Um, timing can be very important. <clears throat> if you want the consideration to be the employment itself. Uh, always make sure you've got adequate consideration. And then the janitor rule, are you narrowly, are your provisions narrowly tailored? Um, are you doing your job to make sure that they're 
enforceable. I've got an example here of a new consideration clause. Again, I'll be happy to provide that. So we really didn't leave time for examples of cases, but that's a lot of information to uh, go over in less than an hour. Um, I hope, again, our goals were to give you an overview of the key provisions that you want to make sure are included in all of your employment agreements, um, that you've got a good understanding of why they're there. Uh, some drafting techniques of language generally to include and not include, and to really understand that at the end of the day, you've got to appreciate the jurisdiction that you're in, what's the state law, how does it apply to you, um, and then being able to tweak and revise those key provisions and key language so that you are best able to secure your legitimate business interests. So appreciate your time. I hope that it was at least helpful to uh, allow you to issue spot some of this when you go back to your desk and review your employment agreements today. And thanks for uh, allowing me to join you, Dan, and Leo Force. Thank you very much, Jill. I really appreciate it, and I appreciate everyone um, that joined us today uh, and hope that uh, you join us uh, for future webinars. Um, and I know we're a couple minutes over, so we're going to go ahead and let you go. Uh, everyone have a great day, all right?